Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Bruno podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I am your host Dikjay and today I have with me Smita Agarwal, Global Investments Advisor at Flourish Ventures, which is a fintech focused fund backed by the Omidyar Group. Smita is a fintech investor and a thought leader with deep expertise in venture capital, financial inclusion, digital banking and financial regulation. She has been listed amongst the top 30 fintech influencers in India as well as amongst the top 100 women VC investors in the world in a recently published book Women Who Venture. In this episode, Smita talks about her path leading up to venture capital, the untapped fintech opportunities in India, the incentive to build products for the underserved markets, and key criteria for investing in impact creating startups i had a lot of takeaways from my chat with smita and i hope you enjoy this conversation too let's jump into the episode and listen to what smita has to share smita welcome to the vc bruna podcast glad to have you on the show today thank you so much vijay for inviting me it's a pleasure to be here Okay so you know for our listeners who don't know you yet you know can we start with a brief summary of your journey so far and tell us you know what led you to venture investing Sure and I must say that I'm an accidental VC it was not something that I had planned to do you know I'm a CA by qualification and um, soon after I finished my exams I joined ICICI Limited which was a premier development financial institution back then focused on project finance for large corporates and so I began my career in project finance that was early 90s and India had just kicked off the liberalization reforms and as the financial sector was opening up ICICI was at the forefront and transforming in multiple different ways so I had the good fortune of doing multiple things you know as icic as an institution was transforming so i started with project finance moved on to the liability side to head foreign currency borrowing gdr issue external debt raising and by the late 90s early 2000s when icic forayed into consumer finance i moved into retail banking and digital channels i also then part of icic group insurance uh, company where i headed the rural and agri uh, vertical So after a very fulfilling 15 years at ICICI I then moved to a Temasek owned uh, NBFC in India and set up their rural lending business setting up a new business from scratch and see it grow is a thrilling experience as all startup founders also experience I also was part of you know the RBI think tank and then through that got a peek into the policy making process and a very vantage point of view of the entire uh, banking industry and with all of these different and very rich experiences behind me i was then exploring something different to do you know i was evaluating different options where i wanted to leverage my past experience in financial services but also do something uh, that i had not done before and vc investing fitted that bill very well and uh, it was also the perfect timing to jump into fintech investing as india had just embarked on its digital journey aadhaar based kyc had been introduced upi was soon to be launched and there was a fast emerging startup ecosystem brimming with new ideas so i've now been a vc investor for more than 5 years and it's a whole new world to discover uh, i must admit very different from the world of banking So what aspect of being a venture capitalist uh, you know do you enjoy the most Overall a lot of things are very exciting I think for me the best part of being a VC is the energy you draw from engaging with new startups you know every week I meet at least 
two or three new founders. It's so wonderful to hear the range of things and ideas people are working on and to see how creative and innovative people can be. Second aspect that I really like as an early stage investor is to see your investee company grow and evolve rapidly in front of your eyes. Right. And of course, you know, a VC plays a very important role uh, as they grow and, you know, see those different phases as they evolve. And we'll talk about it a bit more, uh, you know, later in the podcast. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, you know, you've been associated with Flourish Ventures now, which is a part of Omidyar Group. And we focus a lot on helping ideas and entrepreneurs that are helping people achieve financial health and prosperity. Plus, it's an evergreen fund, which means, you know, there's no fixed fund life and therefore you can deploy patient capital with a long term perspective. So when you're, you know, trying to back entrepreneurs and ideas that are making an impact, you know, in the financial sector, how do you prioritize between product, the team and the market, you know, when you are making the decision uh, of which companies to back and which not? It's a great question and something that uh, is not very obvious to everybody. So I'm glad you're asking. I think the core idea of impact investing is to have a dual goal of making financial returns and creating large scale impact through the investment. Financial returns are very well understood. On the impact side, it starts with who is the addressable market that the business is targeting. Is a business model catering to underserved customers like SMEs or gig workers or low-income households? I think that's the first point that which is very important. Who are you addressing? And the second is, in what way is the product or service improving their life? Is it providing access that was not available or affordability or convenience? The questions that we need to ask is, does it result in improved incomes for your customers or better risk management or lower costs? What is the impact of that solution on the lives of your customers and how is it making their economic life and their financial life better? And then the last part of assessing impact is, is there potential for creating impact at scale? That is, um, is this reaching a large segment of customers or can it be replicated in multiple geographies? It's important that, uh, you know, my focus area is fintech and financial services. And one must remember that financial services are not an end. They are a means to an end. And the end is really economic empowerment and better management of your financial life. And that is really the core of how you assess the impact of your business model. And therefore, is that a business model that's helping people get more economically independent, can have better control of of their financial life, and finally, become financially better off uh, and build more resilience. I think those are the core parameters that we look at when we say we are doing investments that can create impact. Right. And maybe, you know, from some of the portfolio companies that you've invested in, could you point out to some specific metrics, you know, that you would constantly measure and assess, uh, you know, after you've made the decision that, okay, we'll invest in them. Sure, there are lots of them. So let let me take the example of lots of investing companies that are focused on SMEs. You know, as we all know, in countries like India, SMEs form a very large chunk of our population. You know, they are almost close to 50, 60 million small business owners. They are all economically active. They contribute a significant chunk to the GDP. But as far as financial services are concerned, they are hugely underserved and they largely form uh, part of the informal sector. It's only recently because of uh, efforts like GSC and other efforts to bring them into the formal ecosystem that there is more attention being available for providing services to them by the you know incumbents. But otherwise, they've been largely excluded. And so if you have a fintech lender 
I think the first metric that happens is how many of your loans are going to first-time borrowers, people who have never borrowed from a formal financial institution. Yep. So new to credit customers that you are serving. So that that's the whole argument around you are able to provide them access, which was otherwise not available. So how many of your borrowers are first-time borrowers? The second metric would be what has been the impact after they have borrowed the money. In case of uh, business lending for working capital needs, for example, it's very easy to directly see the impact that you are able to borrow, buy stock, turn it over, increase your sales and increase your income. You know, the direct correlation between your ability to have your cash flow needs met so that you can finance your stock and working capital in time allows you to grow your sales and therefore allows you to grow your income. Uh, that is then very evident of the impact you're creating, not just by providing them access, but helping them then grow their income and grow their sales. So yeah, that's how the metrics would get measured and that's how the impact would get uh, you know assessed. Sure. And, and we are seeing very, you know, uh, interesting business models coming up in this space, trying to serve the underserved market, as they call it. So, you know, as we see the fintech landscape, uh, you know, evolve in the next decade, what are some of the promising trends and interesting business models that you're bullish about? I think, of course, currently, post the pandemic, a lot of things have changed. And we are clearly in a in a very different world today. But a few things have actually, you know, just been accelerated from before. So I think the one big trend is really rapid digitalization. You know, the adoption to digital across the board is so evident, including by customer segments that were traditionally very resistant to digital adoption. And coming back to, you know, SMEs being one of those segments that were very resistant to adopting any digital tool. But today, they are all hungry for going digital. They are waiting to find solutions that can actually make them visible to their potential customers far and wide. They are waiting to try new uh, digital solutions that can give them better access to supplies, that can give them more power of generating uh, sales, all of that. So I think the entire SME digitization is one theme that has just about started to unfold. And linked to that, you know, there's a whole range of products and services that can be offered to them, you know, be it for helping them with their sourcing, helping them with their accounting, helping them with uh, the sales side solutions. The entire white space is open uh, on that front. The second thing is, I think traditionally, um, insurance has kind of been lagging behind the banking sector. You know, banking uh, led a lot of the digital innovations in terms of, you know, starting way back uh, almost uh, 15 years ago or even longer in, on the uh, internet banking side and all. Uh, and then, of course, now you have a whole range of things that you can do without ever going to a branch or visiting or meeting anybody. But the insure tech space is just about opening up. And I think the realization amongst the consumers and businesses of the importance of having you know, well-designed, suitable insurance products is also far higher. So I think the insure tech space is going to be really exciting. And a lot of innovation is possible over there, not just on the distribution side, but also on the claims, handling claims, settlement. You can effectively have completely paperless claims, which are proactively paid out even before filing a very cumbersome paper-based process. There can be better product design that can happen on the insurance side because of a lot of digital information that is available. So that entire insurtech space is really interesting. And the third thing I would say is the notion of embedded finance, you know, 
traditionally we've all been used to banking being offered by the concept of universal banks where you have a bank which does everything from origination to product to uh, risk management to compliance to balance sheet capital that may not be the model of the future and you find those services getting unbundled and there's a, a different tiers taking over, over different parts of that entire value chain and the second aspect that we have traditionally been used to on banking is that you go to a bank own channel yeah. if you want to take up any service you either go to a branch or even if you talk about digital banking you're going to the website of the bank and you know doing internet banking or you going to the mobile app of the bank and then doing your transaction these are all bank owned channels i think going forward what you're going to be seeing is banking and financial services are going to be embedded in real economy use cases wherever the customers are and be offered in the moment where they are what they need so when you are buying something on amazon and you get an option with on your payment uh, checkout screen which says pay later yeah. that's actually a combination of a loan plus payments being bundled together and as you click that in a matter of few seconds there's a lot of number crunching and decision making that's happening in the background to evaluate who you are uh, how much of credit worthiness do you have and can a loan be approved and it need not be that loan is coming from amazon it could be coming from a partner of amazon but for the customer it's a seamless experience that you go to buy something and as you go there there is an embedded financial product that gets offered to you and that's what i mean by embedded finance you know where financial services are available in the moment when you need it and it's not a separate standalone transaction for which you have to go visit the bank and so banking in a way will become invisible and there will be more and more of these kind of services embedded with tech platforms with you know wherever the consumers are available yep right and you know we are seeing that acceleration and hopefully we'll see that become mainstream as we see uh, you know oken go live which is the open credit enablement network you know similar to the upi that we had on payment side uh, i guess on the lending side uh, this could be quite revolutionary and like you said you know embedded finance would become mainstream and not just e-commerce but other use cases where we you know interact with different apps uh, and finance becomes an integral experience within those apps absolutely yes and you know you touched upon some of these models where digitization has been a focus now and it's been accelerated because of the situation that we are in you know everything is uh, remote one other thing that has come out is the massive untapped opportunity uh, that is to build for the tier 2 and the tier 3 cities or markets uh, which is a completely new consumer segment right which is witnessing a unique confluence of mobile data and the lack of financial inclusion as of today so you know when a founder is building for this market what should be his focus area and what should be his approach uh, when he's trying to serve this customer segment so i think one of the biggest ways to tap this market is to understand the consumer really well you know because the entire customer group is not one single homogeneous mass you have to kind of be very narrowly focused on the segments that you want you know in the geographies that you want to work with them if it's small towns rural areas it's really important to understand their needs understand their context and then build a solution that works in that context rather than try to do a copy paste of something that has worked elsewhere or you know you do a copy paste of a foreign business model i think that in my mind is the number one need that you have to understand your the second thing i would say is that you know the 
if the if the solution that you are offering addresses a real problem traction and adoption will happen you don't need to incentivize people to use your product the crux of the matter is are you solving a real problem or are you expecting them to change their behavior to use your product if you're solving a real problem adoption will happen as long as you are available and it's easily accessible what you're offering right and you know in terms of signals you know what are the signals that the founder should be looking for to get an answer to this question which is you know am i solving a real problem for this segment i think the best way to get the answer is from the customers themselves and that's why to have your ears close to the ground and have and you know continuously get feedback and understand and uh, you know I, interestingly i found a lot of founders actually get the best ideas from their customers you know sometimes they roll out a product and when they actually see how the customers are using it they find that their use cases they have a lot of other unintended use cases that have come up which they had not planned for yeah uh, so i think the best way to get signals is to listen to your customers and get ideas both kind of thing a what's working as well as what's not working when you see what's not working that your prompt for what next you need to do yep yep fair enough and you know the next follow up on this is uh, as an ecosystem right how do we incentivize more startups and more founders to build for this underserved segment of the society who are the key stakeholders and you know what are the strings that we can pull as an ecosystem to have more startups and founders in this space so of course you know there are vc firms such as ours like flourish uh, that focus explicitly on you know encouraging business models that are working for the underserved segments and that that's a huge incentive but other than that i think the incentive is evident i think it's evident in the fact that it's really a large untapped white space for you to go out and do something about so that itself should be biting to the entrepreneurs that here's a very large customer segment that needs a solution there is not too much of competition there are not too many people who have come in and are working on uh, you know inundating print solutions and fighting for their attention and so is there something creative that i can do to solve for them i think that itself is a big incentive that there's a very large market if you want to be anything meaningful in a country like india you have to be catered to the masses because that's really where you can get the scale right and you know of course there is scale and a big market but a lot of you know founders and even some investors have been averse uh, to investing because of the lack of monetization or you know the delay in the monetization through these models so you know what would be your thoughts on uh, getting to the point where you think about monetizing your product versus first trying to you know build that product and getting traction so how do you balance between those two uh first of all i would like to say that this is a myth that small value customers cannot afford to pay in fact they end up paying some of the highest fees and price for the product in the informal market you see lending for example yep. they probably don't have access to the formal market but the kind of price they pay in the informal market is usually two or three times of what the formal financial uh, service providers would charge so affordability is there i think the question really is giving them suitable products that work for them i think that design concept and the ability of the providers to reach them you know in a effective way those are the big challenges i don't think monetization per se is the big challenge one of the big challenges really is the distribution how do you reach them yep. you know in a, in a cost effective way how do you design a product that works in their context 
you know, those are the two big challenges. And if you can solve for that, uh, monetization, I don't think is the, is the issue uh, because people are willing to pay if you are solving a pain uh, point of theirs. Um, as far as, you know, the balance between growth and monetization, I think it's, what is important is uh, uh, you should have your path to what you're solving for in your path to profitability very clear. Nobody is expecting the startup to be profitable from day one. Yeah. But, you know, on the other hand, if, if you have no uh, plan of how you will monetize your service, or if you don't have the confidence that you're offering a product that people would be willing to pay for, you know, then it becomes really difficult. What is it that you're building for and how do you make your business sustainable? I think the question really is about sustainability more than, you know, whether the monetization is today or a little later. The only way you can grow and create impact at scale is if you can be sustainable. And that, I think, is the most crucial piece. Yep. I think that's very insightful and, you know, very fresh perspective. And it's coming from someone who's been in the trenches and been, uh, you know, supporting some of these startups uh, working in the underserved segment. Uh, I want to switch gears here a bit and, you know, Smitha, talk about the VC aspect of things. And I know you've been uh, covering, uh, you know, different emerging markets across countries. So tell us, you know, how do you manage your time, you know, scouting and investing startups across these different geographies and markets? And how has this multi-market view, you know, helped you as a VC? So my areas of focus are currently are South Asia and Southeast Asia. So if you really break this down, if you see countries like India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, um, they have a lot of things in common. They are all large, fast-growing economies with rapid mobile internet adoption. Uh, but they also have huge informal sector and underbanked population, which makes them fertile ground for fintech innovation. And it's very interesting to work across multiple countries because you can then take learnings from one market and apply to the other. For example, India is far ahead of others in the digital payment space. And when we look at startups in Indonesia, there's a lot of ideas that can be picked up from what worked and what didn't work based on the India experience. There's also a lot of movement of founders across multiple markets we see. Um, many Indian startups are expanding to Southeast Asia. So actually, at one level, you may say that the markets are very different. And, you know, how do you balance across multiple different markets? But at, at the core, there are lots of similarities, a lot of cross-learnings that are very relevant to different markets. And in today's day and age, with um, so much of information flow easily available, it's actually a, a very positive thing to be having a multi-market perspective. Because, you know, the stage of evolution of different markets is slightly different, but the core, you know, structure, the core problems, they are very similar. And it's actually good that you can work on a broader canvas and pick up ideas from a wide range of use cases that you would have seen across multiple markets. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, you've been backing founders at a relatively early stage and as they, you know, grow and mature in their life cycle, uh, founders need to adapt themselves to be ready for that next level of growth. So, you know, what do you think the founders should focus on as they evolve from the early stage MVP level to a growth stage mature company? So 
So I can share from an investor standpoint. So, you know, if you see there are different types of investors who come in at different stages and there are different criteria one would use depending upon the stage of the company. At the angel uh, investment stage, I think the most important thing is really the credibility and experience of the founders or, you know, as I would say, the founder market fit. Who are you and why are you doing what you're doing? You know, kind of a question. What's your background? What's your experience? What's your credibility? Uh, I think that that's the most important thing at the angel uh, stage and a lot of personal credibility drives angel investment. Uh, at the seed stage, one would in addition also like to understand the target customer, what is the problem you're solving, how is your solution innovative and the best one for solving that problem. And you need to start providing evidence of product market fit. And then as you mature, it's important that apart from the product, core product and tech that has been built, there is a strong leadership team that you have been able to attract and, you know, uh, have around you. There is need to show traction in the business, active users, retention cohorts, monetization streams, what's the unit economic, what's the growth like. All of that becomes important at the growth stage. And I think, you know, as founders, if you, if you have a very clear understanding that this is how the company itself needs to evolve, then it becomes easier for you to evolve as a leader as well in line with the growth and evolution of your company across all of these parameters. I think one other thing I'd like to add is, you know, most founders and many of them, as we know, come from a tech background, you know, who are very, very focused on their core idea and the product that they are building. And in the process, and starting a startup is a hugely challenging job and you really need to put all your attention on making it work because, you know, you're juggling so many balls at the same time. But it's equally important that you keep track of the environment and innovation around you and not just so internally focused that uh, while you are building, you forget to keep track that the world around you has moved on or there are competitors that have come up and, you know, uh, gone ahead. And so that becomes a very important thing that while you're building and staying focused on what your business is, you also keep track of things happening around you in the environment and the macro situation. No, absolutely. That's a great point. And, you know, I think investors, advisors play a great role, you know, in the uh, last point that you mentioned, uh, where they can do away with their blinders and be open to other ideas and, uh, you know, what's happening broadly in the ecosystem. And to expand on that thought, you know, if I flip the frame of reference from a VC point of view, you know, how can they help founders through this evolution journey? Providing capital is just one part of the role of the VC. There's a lot more that investors do. You know, I think the biggest role is to be a thought partner and an advisor and a sounding board to the founder on business strategy, on market development, on anything and everything that really the founder would need help on. I think the VCs bring the advantage of having seen a large cross-section of, of founders and investors and therefore they have a perspective which is different from that of the founders so it's, it can work to be a very good relationship if the founders use the VCs as a thought partner and an advisor across the board. Apart from that more specifically I think there are many functions uh, where founders do not inherently have expertise. Not all founders have inherent expertise. It could be brand building for example or building a strong finance and budget function yeah. 
So these are all areas where the VCs can step in to provide external support and help as the company and the you know organization needs to mature. Specific core expertise can be provided so that the founder can get rapid kind of coaching around areas that they are not inherently familiar with. Yep, fair enough. Uh, good points and uh, definitely insightful in terms of what are the other things that a founder should look for beyond just the capital and ask that you know from their VCs. Uh, you know, with that, Mita, we've uh, reached our final segment of the show, which is the rapid fire round. I'll shoot some questions and hope to get your honest opinions on the same. Sure. Okay. First question. Uh, Smita, if you had to give a TED talk, what topic would you choose? Hmm. I think it would be FinTech with purpose. Okay. I'll be looking forward to hear that TED talk whenever that happens. <laughs> okay. Next one. One thing that you'd like to change uh, to help improve the state of the startup ecosystem in India and other emerging markets? You know, once again, coming from my background of financial services and because this is a regulated sector, I would say I would love to see more open communication forum between the regulator and startup. You know, I think there's a there's a gap in understanding at both ends. Startups uh, are not entirely clear about what's expected from a regulatory standpoint and some of them end up having an anxiety or a fear around what to do with regulator. On the other hand, the regulators don't have a very clear insight on how, you know, startups can actually play a very meaningful role with their innovation, with their agility, and how they can be encouraged to do more in the broader ecosystem. So that I would say would be one thing that uh, I would love to see more of. Sure. Last question. Uh, People from the startup ecosystem that you look up to and that inspire you? Undoubtedly, I would say every single founder, you know, I think being a startup founder by itself is such an amazing thing because as a founder, every single day, you have to get up in the morning with your conviction to carry on to fulfill your vision in the face of lots of people opposing you and telling you that what you're doing is rubbish and will not work. You have to still keep going on and you have to not just Self-motivate yourself. You have to energize your team and, you know, sell your story to so many others. I have utmost respect for serial entrepreneurs, people who've kind of done this over and over again. And there are lots of them, you know, that you you create a, a business from scratch. You take it to a scale. You're able to kind of give it a home by selling it or taking it to IPO. And then you start all over again and you do it over and over. I think that for me is a very inspiring And even if it's not successful every single time, I think the fact that you're doing it, creating something, taking it to scale, and then again, going back and starting all over again, that itself is hugely inspirational. Yeah, and absolutely. It's a net positive for the ecosystem, uh, right? Of course, they've done it uh, once before, but doing it for the second time, you know, inspires a lot of people around them who've been working in that startup and benefits the ecosystem overall. Uh, so, Smitha, before we wrap up, any final thoughts for, you know, current and aspiring entrepreneurs who are listening to this podcast? Um, I would say, you know, believe in yourself, believe in your vision and make sure you have the right set of stakeholders around you in your journey. And those stakeholders could be your key employees. It could be your investors. It could be your business partners. Um, so just as the VCs are evaluating a startup whenever you are pitching and the VC decides whether this is an investment worth making, I think equally so, 
the founder should be evaluating the VC and saying, is this the partner I want to have on my journey? You do want to have people who share your vision and who can contribute to that vision. And, and you have the right to make that choice and you should make that choice. Great. Thanks, Medha. I think that's the perfect note you know, to end our show today. Uh, thank you so much for taking out time and it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Digda. Uh, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the VC Bruno podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please let our guests know about it. Share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways. We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast. To get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website, thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VCpreneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining.